Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Backstage Podcast. My guest this week is Jim Bass. Jim and I have known each other for a long time. He is a stark example of the opportunities that are available for anyone that has a desire to contribute to his or her society. Jim started working at a very young age at the Parks and Recreation Department of the city of Roxborough. He then went on to run for office as a city councilor and eventually became mayor of the Pierrefonds Roxborough Borough. For over 30 years, he has dedicated his life for the development and the betterment of his city, and I couldn't be happier that he's on the podcast to talk all about it. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Jim Bass. Thank you so much for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is uh, this is great to see you again, George. It's been a long time. And uh, just before we start, uh, my condolences and thoughts to all the victims and uh, people uh, suffering through the COVID-19 crisis. I mean, there's a lot, not only uh, in our communities in Montreal, but throughout the world. So uh, my heart goes out to everybody that's uh, going through this. Uh, and of course, uh, our thoughts and prayers with uh, our black community uh, that's going through a difficult time and uh, uh-huh. all communities really that face racism uh, on a regular basis. And uh, we have to think of them before everything else. What a, what a crazy time, you know, this has been 2020, uh, you know, had it in store for us, honestly. I mean, it, it's, it's crazy how this whole year starts with us having to adapt to this new reality of having to stay home. And for the people that, um, had to work, they had to figure out a solution. Uh, and then as soon as, you know, everything seems to be kind of calming down and slowly getting back to reality, boom, we're hit with this ridiculous wave of anti-racism and, you know, coming from the U S which, you know, it's, 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 it's crazy just to think of all these things happening this year, man. You know, uh, look, we, we've always been resilient. I mean, uh, communities have come together, uh, and I know this firsthand being uh, who I am in the city. Uh, communities come together, you know, and support one another. Uh, but all of this can't be for nothing. I mean, we can't go through these types of, you know, situations and crisis uh, throughout and then go back to normal when all of this subsides. You know, we need to learn lessons from this. And uh, thankfully, uh, the young people, particularly, uh, have uh, adopted this this style of uh, this philosophy, and uh, will be the future leaders of tomorrow. Understanding, uh, you know, all the challenges we face as uh, as uh, you know as a community in Montreal, especially, and and in the world for that matter. But the unprecedented times, uh, no doubt about it. A crazy thing in these in these situations, and we've seen this. I mean, you know, you, you've been involved in politics for a long time, and you know, we've seen our shares. Uh, our share of demonstrations and and I've never had an issue with you know activists and people taking the streets to uh, to voice their opinion the thing that sucks in these situations are all the anarchists that join in and they just destroy whatever message that these groups want to uh to put forth right and you're see, we, we're obviously seeing it in the US where it's at a different scale but here too, right? Just the uh, I think it was it was yesterday, right? There was uh, there was a demonstration which, 
for the most part, it was pretty decent. It was, it was, um, it was, it was very peaceful. You know, people were respecting the, yeah, you know, the, the the conditions and you know the the social distancing, even the rules. And then you had these lunatics just breaking things. And this is what I find unfortunate. And you know, I don't know if it's a societal thing, and you know, I don't want to call it normal, but of course, it's going to be there. It just, you know, it sh- just sheds a. You know the the wrong light on the whole situation. Certainly, you know this is not a clear indication of who the protesters are. For those of us that have participated in in peaceful protests in the past in our lives, whatever the the issue may have been, I mean have uh, have done it respectfully, and uh, this is what happened for the most part in Montreal. I mean we have a community that came together that had a strong message uh, for the leaders uh, uh, and the police and everyone else that is affected by, you know, this uh, unfortunate reality of racism throughout. But then you have, you know, a, a group of individuals, and I suspect throughout, throughout what we've been seeing on the newscasts, that their primary motivation is to create havoc. And I posted something this morning, and I'm sure it's not the only one, but I posted it because I know uh, the family very well at Steve's Music. And uh, could not believe, you know, what I was seeing following such a peaceful demonstration uh, by Montrealers. I mean, listen, Montreal, protests are absolutely necessary uh, for, for, for different issues. I mean, you need this to bring about change. But this, like you said, clouds the idea of protesting peacefully because there are some, of course, that may think that all protesters are put in the same boat with these types of actions, and it's definitely not the case. And it's just unfortunate that we have to live through this and seeing it on, in the news throughout you know, uh, the states. Uh, and to see it now in our backyard in Montreal is uh, disheartening, uh, to say the least, as well. You know this whole the, this whole question on systemic racism. I mean, it's obviously not new over here as well either. I mean, uh, and, and there's been this whole debate here in Quebec on whether or not there is systemic ra- <clears throat> sorry there is systemic racism. A lot of our leaders try to avoid that question. You know, it's funny. I was on a I was on a live stream this weekend, and I, we were talking about the exact same thing. Where it has become almost taboo here in Montreal to talk about and to come out and say that yes, there's systemic racism for these reasons, or no, there is no systemic racism because of these reasons. So we're always seem to be kind of avoiding to touch that issue. And I remember, I remember last year, I think it was in October at the city of Montreal, there was an independent report that came out from the police of Montreal um, where they had studied uh, different cases and uh, they had come out with this staggering report where you know, black people, indigenous people, and Arabic people or of Arabic descent are much more susceptible of being uh, stopped, questioned than uh, than the white people are. And what I found funny, obviously, it, it's not funny, but what I found surprising is that despite all these elements and all this factual information, they still could not call it um, systemic racism. And they were just sticking to uh, systemic bias. There seems to be systemic biases. I mean, call it as it is. I mean, do we have it or do we, is there, or is there no system, uh, systemic racism here in Montreal? Look, I mean, uh, it's much more subtle from what I see. And from my experience, you know, 30 years working in the municipal world, uh, being at the community level, working closely with uh, nonprofit organizations, serving uh, you know the cultural communities, for example, 
I can tell you that, uh, you know, what we lived through, uh, the mosque shootings, you know, what we see within the black community, when you see under representation uh, of these communities in uh, in positions of power and in politics and in policing and in fire departments and throughout the whole spectrum of society, uh, we see under representation. And uh, the fact is that we've said it in when we were there. Uh, and again, it's not to knock any administration because I'm not here to do that. All I'm saying is that there's still a lot of work to do. Uh, we need to provide opportunities for communities to be well integrated within society so that they feel that they are a part of the decision making and not necessarily be decided upon and um and look we were the first community if not one of the only ones to pass a day of remembrance uh, on islamophobia for example and, and 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 against all forms of racism and there was definitely some pushback for that but the reality is and you said it you have to call it what it is and what we see throughout north america what we saw in montreal yesterday what we saw in toronto two days ago i mean is a clear example of society not being healthy and when people need to stand up for their right basic simple rights security safety and security to themselves and their communities there's a real issue here and the leaders in the community, including the mayors in the communities, have to step up and say, well, what are we willing to do to bridge the gap, as has been done historically through the past by some, but this needs to continue. It can't just be a sign put up and some tweets put out that will make the difference. We need concrete action. There has been some people that have tried to do this in the past with the support of the leaders, and we continue to do this. I mean, but the 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 reality is that there has to be representation, uh, not only you know from from these communities, but for all communities that that live together and try to live in harmony. And that is the only way, in in my belief, that we can do this successfully is to include and grow together and not have one above the other. And this is this is the kind of problem we're seeing now, where the incident involved a police officer that somehow felt that he was bigger and stronger than the person he had on the ground. And all of that has to stop. So how do you do that, Jim? How do you get people more involved? How do you get them in positions of power? How do you get them in positions in politics or on board of directors or uh, even, even just to get them more engaged? How do you, how do you bring them in? We've seen this throughout, uh, particularly because I can speak throughout North America, and uh, whenever you have leaders that have an opportunity that come from these different communities, uh, it creates momentum for the younger folks that are within the communities. I mean, us being from Greek descent, what it's done for, for me is, is it's encouraged, uh, uh, hopefully, the younger generation of, of, of you know, Canadian Greeks uh, to say that this is possible, you know, that I can be one day a mayor, I can work for a, a city, uh, and it's not because I'm not, uh, you know, uh, it's not because I'm Greek or Italian or Black or Muslim that I can't work or have an opportunity. And so once you start seeing that, and we see this already, uh, you know, cultural communities being in, in positions of, of authority, uh, certainly it just creates that wave. But we also have to be a voice for these communities as well and make it known that there are opportunities and give them the tools to be able to succeed within these levels of, 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 of relative authority. I use authority loosely because it's not 
because you're in a position of authority that you are the authority. You are the one that leads communities with the help of everybody around you and the stakeholders involved to be able to cre- create and bring about change. And so uh, there, it's, it's, not a, it's not an easy one. It's, it's, it's been going on for many decades. Uh, but when we see peaceful protests and we see that people are, 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 are unhappy and, 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 and protesting in the way that they are, uh, this is a time where leaders have to get together with the different communities and start the dialogue, and, or if not start, continue the dialogue and find together some solutions that could you know, bring about some relative peace until we get through this. It's very interesting. Um, and, you know, they've made a link with, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not only going to take the black community here, I'm just going to take the the cultural communities more specifically. And there was a link that was made, I can't remember which article it was a couple of weeks back, about how in relation to what's happening with the coronavirus, uh, leaving aside, of course, the senior citizens here in Quebec that have been affected the most, but everyone else, uh, and even throughout the U.S., that have been affected by this virus are members of the cultural communities that are either marginalized, that are living in poor neighborhoods, that don't have the opportunities that others had that unfortunately, well, or fortunately for them, but unfortunately given the situation, have to work in all these essential service uh, sectors where they need to be in the hospitals or they need to be in the cleaning facilities or they need to be, I don't know, bus drivers or taxi drivers or you know, uh, all these, um, in all these sectors that are uh, putting them almost face first with the virus, right? And they, there was a link that was made with the people being affected and the regions and the districts that, they, that they're living in and the economic situation that traditionally they're, uh, they're in, right? Uh, and I feel that that's the case in Montreal too, where almost from the very beginning, the hotspots that came up were Park Extension, Saint-Michel, Montreal North, Côte de Neige. It just seems that whenever we are pointing at something bad, it's just the same sectors that keep coming up. Um, and, you know, I don't know what you think about this, and I don't know exactly how you can make it that things get better. Obviously, I mean, I'm from Park X, and I, I always felt that Park Extension has been evolving positively, uh, especially in the last 10 years. Um, but it's still a very harsh reality that we have marginalized communities and that they are much more susceptible uh, to be affected by anything. And forget about just, you know, the, the, the racism and, you know, what we're talking about. But see, now we're, we're faced with this health pandemic. Again, boom, they're for the first ones to, um, to, to be affected. And, you know, I mean, you, you're always thinking, okay, what's next? Why, are, why is it always these communities that have to face the most challenging Uh, Yeah, the statistic, I mean, look, it clearly indicates that there are uh, communities that are more affected than others. You mentioned that, uh, you know, in a lot of cases, we have these communities uh, working frontline uh, services, you know, whether it be the food industry, whether it be the health industry, uh, whether it be uh, any any service based uh, job, uh, a lot of them are done uh, by these communities. And uh, and we know this. I mean, and uh, and so not to mention that uh, there are pockets throughout Montreal that are highly densified and you have a lot of folks living close to each other i mean where i live i mean i have 10 homes on my street i mean the the chances of me running into anybody on my street is extremely rare 
And I have friends that live, for example, in condos and in apartments who cross each other on a regular basis. And so that definitely has something to do with it as well. There also is probably the issue of not having adequate information in real time given to folks that live within these uh, districts that may not have the ability to get the information in real time as, as a lot of folks do. And this is why it's vital for cities, for example, and I can speak for that because we do it, is to work with the nonprofit organizations because they exist throughout the territory, particularly in highly densified area, particularly in pockets where we have vulnerable populations. And the associations do this successfully and they go and meet with their clients, but also in our case have done door-to-door uh, distribution of documents. I mean, we had the testing bus that we pushed to have in Pierrefonds Roxborough in the eastern section where we made sure that not only did we have it in the core of this or one of the communities per se, but we had also the nonprofit organizations doing a lot of work behind the scenes, reaching out to their membership and getting people out. And in fact, if I recall the serious numbers in Pierrefonds when we had it uh, a couple of weeks ago, our numbers were higher uh, than every other sector that was had taken place before us. And that's not because we're Pierrefonds Roxborough and we're better than anybody else. It's not at all. But what it was, was that we, we had mobilized in a way in our community that thankfully reached out to a larger group of people that were able to get tested uh, during those three days. And so we're encouraged by it because at least we know that that kind of approach works uh, to, to getting the message out, if anything. Oh, for sure. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because on the last episode, I had uh, Joanne, who's a director of PYO, and they've been working like crazy, you know, delivering meals and sensitizing the population. And of course, you know, park extension is so difficult. I mean, the, all, with all the languages um, and all the language barriers, too, uh, in that district, it's, 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 it's such a huge task. Uh, and you're right, the nonprofits, I feel, have been left out in this whole um, you know, during this whole time, uh, and they do provide uh, an exceptional, uh, uh, to provide exceptional work uh, for the citizens. Um, so, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, nonprofits, George. Uh, sorry to interrupt there, yeah, but yeah, nonprofit right. groups, uh, nonprofit groups uh, have existed for for many decades. I mean, we have some in in in, in the West Island, you know, and if not in Montreal, that you know are 100 years uh, and running, you know, and others a little bit less. And there are still many uh, throughout our communities that majority of people have no idea they even exist. Yeah. yeah. And so the message from that has always been, and I've said it many times, and I sound like a broken record saying it, is nonprofit organizations are there for the people they serve. Unless you need that service, chances are you won't know of them. But there are many that work behind the scenes. You know, I mean, we have three food banks. I mean, the food banks that have worked tirelessly through not only this crisis, but have worked, you know, for years before that. I was on the board of one of them for for a number of years. I mean, serve a, a vulnerable population. But unless you know that or unless you're in need, how will you ever know of this organization or reach out to help them? And so this is this is where the issue comes into play when we talk about nonprofit groups and the work that they do, you know. But I also felt that the the reaction was very slow, uh, specifically this pandemic. Um, I mean, f- I remember from week one, you know, like end of March, they had already identified certain hotspots in Montreal. And we're just seeing now 
like in the month of May, uh, public testing sites go up. And, and, and you're wondering, I mean, if you've identified Montreal as a potential danger uh, region, why wait two, two and a half months after this whole thing broke out? Uh, and, you know, you're talking about the, the testing sites happening in, in, in the West Island. Where, where was this, like in March or April? You know, I, I just feel, and, you know, you just to play devil's advocate at the same time, we always figure out what to do, especially this is new. I mean, nobody expected this. We've never been through anything like this. But at the same time, we're in Montreal, we're in Quebec. We have been through crises like this, right? I mean, we do have uh, the reflexes necessary to to, to react uh, uh, upon these things. And I just felt like we waited two months. Like, this is people's lives that, that we put at risk, you know? We have... Uh... We we uh, requested early on, we made available a patch of land that sits next to our city hall uh, to create a mobile site if necessary. We made sure we put out that 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 seed, if you will, uh, you know, almost a good two months ago. Um, the response at the time was that uh, there, of course, it's always it's always the 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 answer that that you know governments. Uh, Will, will say, and a lot of it is true, is that they don't have the resources to be able to mobilize in that way in such a short period of time. Um, my philosophy has always been, and I voice this opinion uh, at every opportunity, uh, whether it be a conference call with Sears, whether it be a conference call with uh, the ministers, whether it be uh, with other mayors, we have to have in any crisis management a proactive approach. We can't wait for the red zone to become or a red zone to be happening at that moment to jump in and start helping a segment of the population that's already affected. And this is this is something that we didn't care for. I mean, and, and we fought for that. I mean, I don't want to be a red zone. There, and if we are, well, at least we would have done everything before that to try to prevent it. And so the idea of having these testing centers, these mobile sites set up, in my opinion, is to test everybody. And not necessarily the people that have the symptoms only, because the ones that don't have, that are asymptomatic, certainly they need to be tested as well. And I know that the testing buses are doing it now. And again, it's hard to be extremely critical because these are unprecedented times. These are situations that none of us have ever lived and hopefully will never live. But you're right on. City like Montreal, province like Quebec, a country like Canada, we certainly can step up our proactive approach and do even more than what we're doing to try to prevent any spread of, of illness. Take the example of the mandatory masks, for example. I know there are some that will say that it's not necessary. No one's going to force me to wear a mask. I get that whole idea that we don't need to be told what to do. The fact is, is that you can go out today, and I do in my community, and I saw it yesterday again in some of the parks. There are folks that think that this is over. Yeah. And this isn't over. And unless there's clearer, because there are directives already, but there has to be clearer directives and make people responsible enough to be able to think of the people around them and not necessarily themselves. And maybe there's a level of selfishness there as well that people don't realize that, wait a second, I don't need to wear a mask because I don't want to wear a mask, but you're not doing it for you. It's the people around you. It's the families and the right. seniors and the children and everybody else that we need to protect. And so in that way, I think that 
certainly we could have done better uh, and try to push that message a little stronger and not just randomly from what I see now, uh, things being open, you know, and now they're, they're saying to us, well, okay, pools can open and some other facilities can open, but wait a second, then we're going to leave it to the municipalities to do it. The municipalities don't have the resources necessarily to be able to police, if you will, these installations and allow the people to use them freely or at least safely. And so there's a little bit of a disconnect now as we're moving forward, in my opinion, between the the government level, the provincial government, and of course, the people that do the work day to day, like the cities do on a regular basis. Right. Uh, On a local level, uh, how do you think uh, Montreal has managed this? Because and I'll be honest with you, you know, for in, the, in the very beginning, I think, you know, Justin Trudeau was a little slow to take off. <laughs> you know, it took him a couple of days, uh, maybe probably, the, the, you know, up to the first week there. They seem to be juggling. And Valerie Plant, I, I kind of appreciated the fact that she stepped up and said, OK, you know what? Forget it. Let me walk into the airport and make sure that people are uh, well informed and given masks or whatever. And then as soon as that happened, I felt like she disappeared. Uh, and I'm not saying this to Basher because I know that you're in the opposition, but it's true. And there was some articles I read last week where they were questioning, you know, where has she been all this time? And then, you know, at the same time, we're seeing approaches being taken that have absolutely nothing to do with the priorities that I think that the city should be focused on. You know, we're, we're, you know, news are coming out now with bike paths and closing down Little Italy. And like, is this really <laughs> the top priority at the moment? Uh, so I don't know how you feel about the, this whole thing. And I know that, and I, you know, I follow you and I follow other municipal uh, councillors. Uh, I see that you are involved in your communities and that you're, you know, you're stepping up. But as an administration, as a whole, how do you feel that, this whole situation has been managed? Look, I mean, if anyone knows me and has followed me and has seen anything I've ever posted in the past, I've never, if ever, bashed any administration or anybody in particular. I know others may do it and they feel comfort doing it. I've never had that approach. Uh, I think on occasion, if I've criticized in a decision, I think that's the extent of it. Again, these are unprecedented times. Would I have handled it the same way? Probably not. Have I read that the administration in Montreal is taking decisions uh, that aren't necessarily the priority in terms of a crisis? Uh, Yes, and I agree with that. There are issues that we're dealing with that are, I think, a little more pressing than having unilateral decisions at the city level that affect so many without even consulting the people that live in these areas. Now, this is center core issues. I'm talking about what happens there doesn't necessarily reflect the reality of who we are on the East Island. But yes, I mean, I have heard and I do agree there are instances in Montreal that, in my opinion as well, weren't or haven't been uh, done in the way that I would have done them. For example, the motion that we put in Montreal to make the masks mandatory in public transit. I mean, we see public transit users in the poll that are saying, for example, 35% of the people, if I'm not mistaken, plan to go back to using regular public transit. Well, the reason, there's many reasons to that, but one of the reasons is the safety of the environment that they have to be in, in order for them to use public transit. And so why wouldn't we want to, as many other major cities throughout North America and probably the world, 
why wouldn't we want to make stuff like that mandatory, at least in the short term, to see the people's reaction to it? And for the ones that can't get masks or don't have them available, as many of us do, for example, well, then the focus should be on getting masks to the people that need them the most and have them use whatever they need to. I mean, we're opening up stores. We're opening up stores that have 100 square feet and telling them they can open, but we don't let a religious institution open that has, you know, 3,000 square feet that can put safeguards in place to, you know, to, to divide the congregation and allow them to pray peacefully and have them be in a place of worship and feel some sense of belonging and, and support within their community. And so certainly there, 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 there are conflicting messages from what I see that make it extremely difficult for people in, in, in my, at my level to try to you know, go through all of that and provide the necessary information to the citizens. And because there's a lot of folks that are still confused, despite all the information coming out in real time, you know, you know, thousand miles a minute, you still have a lot of confusion. And so it's difficult when you have, you know, people that don't understand necessarily the effect and the impact it has, you know, on the, on the regular everyday people that live within these communities. I don't know, Jim, man. We'll, we'll see how these things evolve. Uh, I mean, I follow things as probably not as much as you do, but I mean, you know, and like many others, I'm, I'm stuck you know, in front of my TV screen every morning uh, listening to the prime minister and then in, in the afternoon listening to the premier of Quebec. Everyone has the same worry. I mean, are we prepared uh, enough for a second wave if a second wave were to come? And how is the economy going to be affected come, you know, December all these things that are crossing through people's minds and, you know, uh, people have lost their jobs. They're not sure if they're going to be able to go back to work soon. Uh, you know, the youngsters are thinking about school as well. Um, it, it's such a situation where everything has just <laughs> been completely imbalanced. And I don't know, I, I, I'm, I don't want to say I'm looking forward to how these things are going to evolve because I, I don't want to look forward to anything <laughs> that's related to this. But uh, it's such an unprecedented time that you, like you said, and I don't know. Uh, it, I'm a little worried. I'm a little worried, like many are, and uh, the businesses for sure. You know, you bring up businesses. We have uh, just to give you an example uh, about 500 small businesses in our community, right in Pierrefonds, Roxborough. Um, we had a, a very low vacancy rate, which means that there's a lot of storefronts that are open or were open. It doesn't mean they're all making a million dollars. It just means that they're surviving mm-hmm. and they're providing a, you know, a valuable service to the people that live in the immediate areas. I can't even begin to guess on what the impact this will have on the small businesses, particularly the large businesses, because we hear about bankruptcies as well being yeah. announced as we speak. Yeah. But the small businesses, the mom and pa shops that have been there historically, probably for many, many years, providing this vital service and just surviving. What are these folks going to do? And what is the government prepared to do? They've announced some initiatives. There are programs out there to allow for businesses of all sizes to apply for the different funding that's available. But how long can this go on? And who's going to foot the, foot the bill at the end of the day for this? And so the, the impact, I think, is completely unknown at this point. Yeah. Because already there are some that have boarded up and closed, closed up shop never to reopen again, yeah. let alone the ones that will 
on top of the fact of the employees that work with within all this this entire industry you know who knows the hundreds of thousands of people that work within this industry if not more uh that are without a job that have mortgages that have families yeah. you know that can't get any respite from renters or from 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 owners of, of buildings for example i mean and and people that they rent their businesses from and so the the impact will be enormous one thing is sure and this is what i've always said is that we have to support our local communities and you know this from park x the number of businesses that are within the mixed use buildings throughout park x i mean these are small shops that rely heavily on the people that live within the area to shop there and we all need to do our part to be able to support these businesses and get them back on their feet for the ones that can survive and the ones that can survive well then people in positions of authority and leadership roles should be able to at least voice their opinions to the government on their behalf to try to get them some support as we move forward even if they never were to open again because they've right. taken enormous hits right we'll see how this thing turns up jim um let's talk about you a little bit uh, let's go back as you have been involved in politics like you said for a very long time tell me a little bit uh, for you how this whole thing began how uh, how did you decide this is what i want to do and you know what made you take that you know jump getting back to me uh, my hair is getting a bit longer <laughs> and uh i don't even know to be honest if i have the uh the the courage uh, to go see uh my hairdresser uh, yet i will but not yet uh so uh, but it's okay i'm going back to the 80s um <laughs> the way it started for me was uh look i mean i was in my very early 20s uh 22 i think 22 or 23 uh there was a position that had opened up at uh, the city of Roxborough for director of parks and recreation had uh, no municipal experience of course being that age i mean who did you know yeah. uh walked in with a cv and uh, gave it uh, happened to cross paths with the director general of the city at that time at the counter who happened to be there just by fluke yeah gave him my pitch I, and uh didn't think anything of it a couple of weeks passed they called me for an interview I started working in Roxborough's director of parks and recreation so I've held that position as well as uh, division head of sports and recreation uh for almost 25 years uh at the same time when I was in that position I was also councilor for Peterborough Roxborough um and then became mayor now I've been on this is my third mandate elected um Did I ever think that I would work in this position the years that I that I've had uh I always had hope because I believed in community involvement. Uh I was involved in different school boards on the governing boards of course like many of us coached uh, minor sports uh, sat on different boards through the years community and this level of governance has always been who I've been. I've done other jobs but this is really who I've been. And then the opportunity came up while I was an employee I was approached by the mayor of Pierrefonds at that time to see if I would be willing to run as a councillor with her which uh, I did immediately knowing her and knowing the city where I've lived all my life I decided that uh, yes this is something that I would uh, pursue and uh, after that I mean when uh, she uh, retired uh, I didn't want to be uh, respectfully anybody else's councillor I felt I had the tools I had the expertise, I had the uh professional development that uh I I believed that I could do uh the job as mayor and sat on the executive committee as well as you know uh, responsible for 
sports and recreation. I was responsible for cultural communities and I was responsible for procurement for the city of Montreal for four years before we became the opposition. Um, And so that's really my, 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 my professional path to get me to where I am today. But I never believed in the early years that I would be mayor. I just believed that community was my professional path that I would follow because it's not everyone that could do these jobs, George. Know. You know, people that work in community, there's something about the people that work in community that makes them what they are. And I thought at that time, even at that time, at the early age, in my early 20s, I believed in it. And I still do to this day. I still have the passion to this day that I had, you know, 30 years ago to, to do good in the community. And I think that collectively we can really bring about some positive change that affects people day-to-day, day-to-day lives, uh, you know, enormously. I mean, we're the level of governments that affects people's lives on a day-to-day basis more than any other level. For sure. You're, you're, you're the front line, you're the front line, right? I mean, and, and, you know, I, I was, I was in the provincial uh, sector and we always kind of used to bug our friends at the municipal level because I could not understand how they could just, you know, every single day wake up and deal with, people's problems like you said that are everyday problems the garbage the snow the potholes the sidewalks the parks the you know, and in in the back of my mind i always thought god i i don't know how i would deal with that you know i don't but want this but it, it's, yeah. it's 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 necessary because this is what people are concerned with the most on a daily basis you don't want to look you don't sign up for these jobs to get the praise only you get you get you get everything and uh if you're good at dealing with these things and managing them well and finding resolve for the people that are giving you this information well then great i've always felt i was i don't need it but i'm always good in the fire i always can work in a situation where I think it involves mobilization and resources and crisis management. And we saw this with the floods. You know, I think that we do a good job in our, in our team to be able to provide uh, the services necessary when you're going through these situations that maybe you wouldn't deal with on a regular basis. The regular day-to-day stuff is fine as well, but it's the moments of crisis that, that really, um, what's this, the word I'm looking for, that define, if you will, administrations. I mean, we've seen this throughout the world. I mean, whenever there's a crisis somewhere in the world, even in our backyard, we know what the administrations, if they're in place, if they're doing a good job or they're not. Right. And if they're doing a good job in these situations, well, then hopefully they'll do the, the better job in the day-to-day that affects everyone's lives, you know? Yeah. Was uh, Pierre for Roxborough always part of Montreal, or did you merge? Uh, yeah, Roxborough, uh, Pierrefonds, Roxborough uh, is two independent cities on the West Island. Uh, in 2001, we had the merger, of course, if you remember. And uh, one thing you don't know, and I wish I, ha- I have the picture, I just don't have it here with me. Uh, I was the citizen representative uh, at that time that the mayor of Roxborough had picked to be uh, walking, if you remember on McGill College, the anti-merger rally that mm-hmm. was held with a stage and the thousands of people. Yeah, yeah. 
I was the guy that represented Roxborough with my Roxborough flag against the mergers, if you can believe that. Wow. And how surreal is it that I'm the mayor now of one of the boroughs? Well, Roxborough in 2001 became uh, a borough with Dollar Desormeaux. And Pierrefonds uh, went in with uh, Senville at the time. And so, which made no sense geographically, but they included them. Um, and then after 2004, when they had the, uh, the vote to demerge, that's when you saw some of the West Island cities demerging and becoming their own cities. And Roxborough and Pierrefonds, for many reasons, did not get the number of votes required to demerge. And therefore, they became the borough of Pierrefonds, Roxborough, as one of the 19 boroughs. Would you have wanted to demerge? You know, in hindsight, uh, the sen- a sense of belonging is really the, the stuff I've heard for years. I mean, we're closing in 20 years of, of a merger here. Uh, a sense of belonging, uh, in my opinion, uh, starts, it's not the state that creates a state of, 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 you know, belonging, a sense of belonging. If you can't create a sense of belonging within your own home, on your street, in your neighborhood, in your city, how is the city going to do that for you? And so we have that sense of belonging in Pierrefonds, Roxborough. Of course, that dates back to the early years when we were cities, simply because we have a huge volunteer base and people really get involved and, you know, become resilient in a time of need, as I mentioned earlier. And so all of that plays into who we are as communities. I mean, I still refer to myself as someone who lives in Roxborough because I do. I mean, that's my identity. That's who I am. In hindsight, the tax base that we have in Pierrefonds, Roxborough, is primarily residential. We don't have a huge industrial base or a commercial base to be able to have done the things that we've done through the years, the building of infrastructure that we've done through the years, if we were to have stayed Pierrefonds, Roxborough. Right. Now, all of that is debatable. We've never seen the clear figures in terms of what it costs, for example, if we were to retain all our tax base. But again, we're a bedroom community. We're not the city of Dorval, you know, that generates who knows how many tens of millions of, of tax revenue from the airport. For sure. We don't have any of them. We don't have the TransCanada where we have all those, you know, industrial, you know, companies. We don't have, you know, uh, Labrosse and the Salaberry that Dollard has. We're a bedroom community on the north end of the island that relies primarily on residential taxes. And if we were to have been alone, my opinion is, knowing what I know all these years, is that our taxes would have been significantly higher Higher. than what they are today if we wanted to really keep at the same level we are today. So there are many pros and cons. eh? I'm not not sold 100% of being with Montreal, no, no question about it. However, I think that if we were to work as we did for the four years before, uh, work closely with Montreal and have an opportunity to get funding for the things that we need. I mean, look at the indoor pool that we're going to be building. We worked for that for the last four years when we were there. Did all the analysis, did all the budgetary, uh, you, know, uh, you know, all that information was produced so that we were able to come to the point to build that pool. And this is where we are now. Right. I mean, a pool that would cost, you know, tens of millions of dollars. How would we have done that, you know, if it was a revenue base, uh, you know, from taxes, uh, residential taxes. We wouldn't have been able to do that, in, right. in, in my opinion, again. You mentioned the floods. Um, 
and you've been very vocal in the last year specifically with uh, you know with the regards to the floodings uh, in your district uh, talk to me about the you know the government uh, the special uh, planning the, the the zone the the flooding zones that the government came up with and i know that you were um, you were very vocal against it what was it what what was proposed you know what was wrong with it and you know why did you feel that you needed to contest that and you know what was the issue um, I know there's some funding that you've been uh, debating with uh, the, the, the Valerie Plant administration about, you know, some government federal funding that uh, that was given that you feel that you deserve to have more of. Um, what's going on in that situation? Flooding in 2017 was horrible in beautiful Roxborough. It was, again, a level that we had never seen in history in our community. We flooded almost eight to 900 homes. Uh, we were caught off guard as many communities were throughout Quebec. Uh, and we were trying to catch up. And once you're underwater, it's very difficult to catch up. Yeah. But having lived that experience, we were able to study what was being done throughout, again, North America and the world in terms of crisis flood management. And we're able to put safeguards in place, purchase the necessary equipment to be able to get the result we got in 2019. We created an intervention plan, and I'm sorry, 20, yeah, 2019. And in 2019, we had the water level even higher than it was in 2017. Right. Yeah, we had 50 or 60 homes flooded that were in a vulnerable zone that couldn't be saved as much as we tried. <laughs> but since 2017, we've been working with the government to look at not only our community, but throughout the CMM, the Metropolitan Community of Montreal. And that is because water doesn't pick and choose where it goes. It's, we're an island, so you're going to have communities all along into Quebec, into the east that will be flooded if action isn't taken, you know, step by step to be able to uh, fix some of the issues that we have, not only with water cresting in the different areas, but with the storm sewer systems that are outdated and haven't worked in a way that they would be needed to if the water level was to go up to this point again. So, yes, the federal government announced money to Montreal to be able to uh, work on different measures, if you will, on flood uh, you know, management, which the city of Montreal, the majority of that money, and it's in their right. I mean, they're the administration used to purchase land uh, that uh, they feel uh, will be a natural retention of water. It is. It, it, it always will be. It always was. And it will continue to be. The purchase of that land won't do anything to stop flooding uh, the homes that are already there. We're not talking about, George, building communities and infrastructure in flood-prone areas. That's not at all the discussion. The discussion is how do we protect the areas that are there already? And the way we do that is, first of all, you have to analyze the situation as we've done internally and know that with the public's support and consultation, we start looking at ways of preventing floods by building permanent infrastructure. And permanent infrastructure we know exists in Florida, in, in Holland, in, in Greece. I mean, uh, anywhere you have water, people have built barriers, if you will, whether they be natural or prefabricated, that blend in with landscapes and, and communities to be able to prevent water. None of that has been done yet by any of the governments. And that is one of my biggest concerns that I have, is that this temporary stuff that we do, and we did again this year to prevent flooding because we could have been flooded again about a month and a half ago, and we weren't because we've, we've put measures in place, is that we can't keep doing this every year. 
the health of a community depends on the security and the safety people have living within it. And if you can't provide that basic safety and security for residents that live within these zones, what are you going to do? Am I going to do like what the government proposes for some of these folks, give them $250,000 and tell them to leave when their home potentially could be worth a million and they've worked all their life to live there and never flooded in history. And now because two incidents, we're going to tell them to leave. No, we're going to try to find some tangible solutions that will result in them at least being safe as we move forward. And yes, I've, con- I've complained about it. I've had every opportunity complaint. It's not even a complaint. It's, it's a concern that I have because we're representing the citizens. And it's not because the government, wherever they may be sitting, as respectful as I am to all the folks that live and work in government, they need to come to the ground and see how some of these communities are, not only in my community, but throughout Quebec, and say, okay, well, we're, what can we do? In St. Marceau-le-Lac, for example, there's pushback by the residents that live there because of the monstrosity they built there to protect the neighborhoods. Now, is that the only solution? Maybe that's the only solution. Was it consulted with the citizens? Did they all agree together? Is that really the only thing they could have put there? And again, it's to protect everybody. I get it. But there has to be a concerted effort to involve the people that live there. And as it's been up until now, especially with this intervention zone map, we have a zero to two flood zone. We have a two to 20 year flood zone and we have a 20 to 100 year flood zone. We are still permitted to issue permits in the 20 to 100 year flood zones with specific requirements. That has been done and has been historically done for years and we do a good job at it. What's changed is since this flooding in 2017, from the zero to 20 year floods can no longer be built on anything. You can't put a swing, you can't put a post, you can't put anything. But now what the government did following 2019 was they created this general map throughout Quebec that is called the special intervention zone map that they claim will be temporary. But what that did in the beginning was it did not only include the zero to 20 year zone, but it included far reaching areas that had never, ever seen a drop of water in history, right? which affects insurance, affects values and concern, anxiety and all of that. And we've been working hard with uh, the government to try to remove a lot of these sectors, which I have to say they have removed some, but there are still some issues that still need to be resolved. And this is, you know, a year later, more than a year later. Right. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that about the value. I mean, you're living in an area, you're investing pretty much your life savings on a property, you're, you're, you're developing your life there, and then suddenly, you know, something like this comes around and your house is worth nothing, you know? That's the problem, is that if it's not worth nothing, what happens is, what's the value of the market value if you sell it? The other thing that we've heard is that you can't you can't get insurance. Yeah. And if you do get insurance, your premium is through the roof and they won't the cover you for the that covers you for flooding isn't covered anymore. Yeah. And so you can imagine already going through the stress of not even being completely reestablished in your home since the initial floods of 2017, but now you have all these hurdles that you have to jump through. Yeah. And if the government says, "Well, okay, I'm going to give you a subsidy to fix your floor, for example, that was flooded." The guy is saying, well, look, I can't fix my floor for that much money. There is no contractor, and I've gone to 10 to get a price, and nobody's giving me that price, but the government's giving me a fraction of what I have to pay. 
And I don't have any money to, to put additionally because I've spent so much everywhere else. I'm a senior citizen. I'm working, living with revenue that, that isn't as, 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 you know, as much as it was once upon a time. And so you have, yes, the monetary issues. But one thing people don't really talk about, and we've said it countless times, the psychological impact that this has on a community, as the COVID has, for example, but what it does to people that live within a flood zone, knowing that there are potential solutions and that no one is helping them to get these solutions, that's an added stress yeah. that people don't need. What kind of solutions so are there? This is why we have to be the voice for them. What kind of solutions are there, Jim? Well, look, I mean, first of all, you, gotta, you have to give them uh, the value of what they need to do. Number one, it has to be representative of the costs that they will incur to be back to normal. And then what you have to do is you have to look at ways of building permanent solution. The floods of 2019 cost 6.7 million in Pierrefonds-Roxborough. So what I'm saying to the government is, give us two. Give us two and let us decide, for example, what measures we can put in place to save some of these areas. Because what that's going to do in the end is it will reduce the, the tab, if you will, to the government that they have to reimburse residents with one day if ever we get another flood. So how come we're not talking about that? How come everybody around the table, you know, uh, is talking about all kinds of other issues, but not talking about some permanent solutions, which I believe can be done cohabitating with the environment, making sure that we respect, you know, everything that's along the waterfront, not only from the brush, but to, you know, the species that, that may live there. I think there are experts out there that can help communities throughout Quebec and Canada, as is done elsewhere, to be able to find solutions that can, you know, get all of this in harmony. But that's one thing that's lacking tremendously since 2017 that we continue to push for. And, and hopefully, hopefully, as we move forward, we'll get some, some result. You had issues also with the REM, the, the electric, um, the electric high-speed train uh, that will have a station in your district. Uh, what happened there? Because I, I, I was following you and I know there was an issue with, you know, the parking and the mobility. What seems to be the problem? Why can't people understand that, yes, this is a good project, but people need to get to that to, to those facilities in order to use it? You know, uh, the REM is going to be uh, an incredible addition to the uh, transport offer for West Islanders. For sure. We know being on the West Island, I mean, to get to point A to point B isn't always the easiest thing because simply we just don't have the number of lines or metros that you need to be able to do that on top of it you can't encourage more because we just don't have the density to do it and then when you want to densify they don't let you densify because you're you're urban sprawling if you will you know so i mean it's the catch-22 but the rem we have two stations in pier fall Oxford. we're fortunate to have two stations already that are used to capacity at the at, at regular times if you will with the rem coming in there's two stations that have parking lots, Sunnybrook and Pierrefonds Roxborough. These stations are already overwhelmed. By 8 a.m., if not earlier, they're jammed. So what happens? These areas, the residential areas where I live in that area close to me, are completely saturated with vehicles parking on residential streets, right. affecting the quality of life of the people that live there. Street sweepers can't go by, garbage trucks have a problem, there's no sidewalks, so there's a safety issue for young families and so on and so forth. 
And so what we've said is, you can come up with a REM, which we support and we will, you know, cheerlead if we have to. But you have to look at the collateral issues like parking, knowing that the REM will become popular, wanting it to become popular, us encouraging people to take public transit when it's possible, because we will do that and we continue to do that. We're not against public transit. We just want people to use it and be viable. So if they're spending all these billions of dollars, how come nobody's talked to us or to anybody about, for example, building multi-level parking spots? And the answer I get to that from Montreal is, well, we don't want to encourage the car. Wait a second. How am I going to get to my house 20 kilometers away in Pierrefonds, just using Pierrefonds as an example, to get to the train station, which both of them are in the eastern part of my borough, by public transit? when there isn't adequate lines to do that. Right. And you don't have designated bus lanes to be able to do that. And when you want bus de- designated bus lanes, you don't have the density to do that. And so people will use their car, right, to get to that spot. And so we're saying, well, we want to encourage that because that person has to drop off a child in school, maybe two children at two different schools, maybe after work, go pick up the child, bring them to sports, to the library, to whatever activity they have planned. And so it's not realistic for us to encourage public transit when people can't bring their car to a place to be able to drive. Uh-huh. The other issue that I had with the REM was concerning the Kirkland station, where we had the 440, they call it the 440 because that's what it was, but it was another urban boulevard in the western portion of Pierrefonds, west of St. Charles, where I have 30,000 residents that live in that area, on top of the ones living in Kirkland and so on, where for years we've been working for that boulevard to be open from Pierrefonds Boulevard to the Coliseum in Kirkland, if you remember, if you know where that is, where the REM station will be. So Montreal decided, again, unilaterally, without consulting any of our citizens, not even the mayor of that community, that they were going to put in an urban boulevard from about halfway up and make it for bike lanes and buses. So you laugh. I mean, just laughing is even even enough because I want to laugh too because that's how nonsensical it is. I'm laughing, Jim, because I I I have this feeling that and and like you said, the the key word here is unilaterally. Montreal is becoming one giant bike path in general. I don't have a problem with bikes. I don't have a problem. I, like I haven't ridden one in years, but I don't have a problem with it. But when you don't have the the infrastructure in place to create these means, you're obviously uh, creating a burden on what exists already. Uh, and I get the transition. It's the in thing. Okay, we get it. We're in politics. It's a very populist thing to do. Uh, you know, she's gearing up for an election next year. I get that. But, and I'm going to just briefly bring it back to Little Italy that came out last week. You're closing down St. Lawrence Boulevard, man. Okay, it's fine. You want to get the bike pass there. Okay, how many people use that street to cross from the southernmost point to the northernmost point of Montreal? You understand? So yeah. this is what, and I've come to the point where I'm just laughing. I'm laughing because it's, 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 it's surpassing the ridiculous, I think. You know, we talked about cohabiting with the environment right before with the floods. Mm. We're not against, listen, I do two to 300 kilometers a week on my bike. If anybody knows the bike, it's me. It's been a part of my life. It could be fused on me. That's how much I ride. We're not saying the urban boulevard shouldn't be for buses and shouldn't be for bikes or pedestrians at all. We're saying that that's what it should be for. Mm -hmm. 
but it should also include vehicles because those vehicles would be able to be driven to the train station in Kirkland and allow for them to take the train and not get on the highways and congest traffic further east right. or west for that matter. Yes. And so the whole idea of cohabitating within a major boulevard, which is really another St. John's sources in St. Charles, would have the different you know, means of transportation integrated as we had proposed and as we have in the plans to have all of that already, but not exclude the car. Because the folks that live within that pocket of 30,000 residents, you want them to take public transit. You want to encourage them. So why wouldn't you want them to take their car or allow them at least the option to take their car and bring it to a train station, which now I had heard, and since then, had 2,000 parking spots initially uh, designed and have been removed. So this stuff is to, it's, it's almost like, we want to penalize the folks that have vehicles because they have no other choice. Like it's making it very difficult for people there that have been, at least as far as I've been involved in politics, you know, over 10 years, they've been begging to have uh, a means to bring them to the downtown core of Montreal or, you know, from the airport. I mean, how long can you remember the West Island communities begging to have either a, a, a train station, metro? It's been very difficult, but. I, as far back as I can remember. I was and in high school. Have, but you have the option now. And instead of I was in high school when the buses when the buses came to the West Island, I was in high school. And yeah. I remember uh, when uh, the 211 uh, started and it would take you right downtown to the metro. It was a, an absolute new discovery for everybody of that generation because all of a sudden now, or once upon a time, we never, ever went to downtown mm-hmm. unless we went with our parents to park x or whatever but all of a sudden now here we are on a bus going downtown and it was actually good yeah and it still is and this is why a lot of people opt for it but if you make it difficult for people to take public transit they're not going to take it yeah the same way that 35 percent of the people polled are willing to go back to public transit today because in my opinion if they don't see that it's safe enough they're not going to take it so what are these people going to do They're going to buy cars. They might go into the car sharing industry. They might start using more bikes. It's going to congest the roads otherwise. And so is is that really what we want? Or do we want to encourage people to take public transit every way possible? I can't take my bike from my... I can because I live around the corner. But somebody who lives in the Western Point in in, in Pierrefall, how are they going to take their bike or walk just to get to a bus stop to take you to that train station? let alone, you know, walk or whatever. How are you going to do that? And you're senior, you have children, you have bags. How are you going to do that? Yeah. And so well, those are issues I think that are decided. Uh, and, I, and I can't think anything else. And again, respectfully, I say this because I'm pretty sure this is how it is. And if it isn't, somebody can correct me. But I suspect that this kind of stuff happens on somebody's desk with some philosophical approach that doesn't meet necessarily the reality of the people that live within these communities hence not being consulted whatsoever Mm. when that announcement was made for your information because you see now i'm getting emotional about it when that announcement was made do you know that the mayor of the largest community in the west island me wasn't even consulted or even called to say that that was happening yeah so it just again I don't want to bash anybody. I'm just giving you reality here. And the reality is that when you don't share a philosophy, 
at any government level with a community per se, then you're going to have these types of things happening. I mean, this happens throughout the history of politics. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you don't have a a political party, whether it be provincial, federal, or or municipal, that doesn't necessarily understand the day-to-day of any community throughout Quebec even, Canada even, then you're going to have these types of issues. And so we'd like to work with everybody to be able to find solutions for the citizens, but that hasn't been very easy, as you you, you probably know, since you follow what what I do. What about inversely, the fact that you know now that there's a potential influx of people that can come into your region, okay, much easier than it ever was before. Um, What are we looking at in terms of business, in terms of development, in terms, you know, is anything uh, in plans for that uh, sort of um, uh, development? Last uh, two years, we've had an economic resource that we share with Lachine. Um, he does an extraordinary job in reaching out to our business community and all the stakeholders that manage funding for, for nonprofit uh, for business communities and organizations. Certainly, we look at everybody has that perception. We have now these this new way of transport to get us down to Montreal. But do you know the number of people, the hundreds of thousands of people that work on the West Island coming from downtown? Yeah. I mean, industry is here, not only along the 40 where the, one of the trains will be, but coming into my community and going further up all the way to the Montagne. So certainly it's going to open doors for people that live in other communities to have them come here and look for job opportunities. Certainly. I think it's too early to tell what type of impact that'll have, but certainly the pool of, of potential employees will all all of a sudden, you know, explode because you're not necessarily looking at work around the corner from your house anymore. Right. Because you have a train ride that's going to take you from point A to point B in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So that is something that I think we will work at with the uh, PMEs of of, uh, the West Island and uh, the business community and see what can be done to try to promote a local business and encouraging people from other districts to come and work in our communities. I mean, I think it's a little easier for the the cities on the West Island that have the industrial base more than it is for the small businesses, but certainly the small businesses can benefit from folks coming from elsewhere. Certainly it opens doors, no question about it. Uh, we're going to close it up, man. I know I've kept you on for a long time. Uh, we're just a little over a year away from the next election. Uh, let's talk about the previous election. What exactly happened? Uh, I know that I was shocked, and, I'm, I, and I know that I'm not the only one uh, with the result. And, and good for Valerie Plant, obviously. I mean, she won. Good for you. Congratulations. Uh, but yeah, at least the people that I talk to and that I would uh, see it on a daily basis. They seemed surprised, you know, uh, during that election day with the outcome. Uh, what went wrong in your opinion? Look, every uh, historical fact that we have on politics and elections, uh, polls and all of that, and you know this as well, George, being there uh, for all that time. I never follow uh, you, can never be, you can never yeah. be sure. Yeah. Um, I was shocked. Um, I was shocked because I know how hard we worked yeah. in, in my community. And I know the response that we got in my community. All of us won, you know, our slate won here in Pierrefonds, Roxborough. And the comments that I was getting at the doors just in my community were all positive for the team in Montreal, including uh, our, our mayor. And so he won here in Pierrefonds, Roxborough. 
and I suspect in other areas as well. I mean, the votes, the margin wasn't that great. But you know that saying when sometimes when you think that what outcome will happen and you just don't go and vote? Oh, yeah. well, they're going to yeah. win anyways. So why yeah. am I going to go and vote? Yeah, they take it for granted. And I think there was a lot of that. Yeah. Now, was it a perfect administration? No, no administration is perfect. One thing I know for sure, not only being there, but being on the executive and sitting there and managing uh, some of the most difficult files in Montreal, knowing what was done in Montreal in the last four years that we were there, that hadn't been done in decades before that. Again, not knocking the administrations, but it's a different time. Mm -hmm. And I know how productive we were in four years. Was it all perfect? No, but I know what, how Montreal moved and how Montreal was on the map internationally and what it did for the city. And I think that's what probably happened is a lot of folks just said, well, oh, they're going to win. It's a shoe in because that's the kind of comments I was getting at the door, even though a lot of folks went and voted for my community. As we move forward to the year, I think that it's still early. Elections, uh, again, even that's unfortunate because you'd like to think uh, that people vote on the merit of four years before they vote. Uh, but unfortunately, from reading all the articles and the polls and the spinsters, uh, polls are won and lost, you know, several weeks before an election. And so regardless of what you've done for three, four, eight, 10, 12 years, people don't it's, the last two weeks is really what people make their you know, opinion on. And so it's still early to say, I think there may be some surprises. Uh, I believe that the one who does choose to run uh, to challenge the administration in Montreal uh, has to be somebody that uh, will continue to make Montreal uh, move forward and not tie us uh, as communities and have a philosophy of the core of Montreal uh, unilaterally imposed on the communities that sit uh, in the outskirts. And this is what we've seen in the last little while. And uh, hopefully that won't continue uh, for much longer. So so you think that there's still time? You don't feel that you waited too long to, to bring in a, a leader? No, I think uh, somebody, first of all, somebody who chooses to run for the mayor of Montreal has to understand the responsibility that it comes with, the amount of time that's devoted to managing a metropolis like Montreal. I mean, I can tell you about Denis uh, Coderre, uh, who uh, loved the city, uh, who was there, uh, you know, 24-7, uh, who never slept, who uh, took uh, his health and, uh, and, and, and threw it away for the, yeah. for, for the betterment of Montreal. Uh, because he believed in it. Uh, again, was it all perfect? Uh, no, but uh, there's somebody, for example, that uh, cared about the city and did everything that he could for it, and for the people that lived in it, all communities. And so uh, that person who chooses to run has to understand that commitment. I know as a mayor of the borough, the commitment that I have and the sacrifices I make for my family and, and not being here and being present at everything and needing to be uh, in, in the community. Uh, I can only imagine, and I saw it firsthand, what it was uh, for the city of Montreal. And so uh, when that decision is taken, uh, I would like to think it's taken within the next few months, but uh, there's still time for somebody to come forward and to, uh, and to uh, you know, dictate their intentions. Any idea on who? 
No. <laughs> no, uh, no, there's uh, no idea. Uh, listen, there's probably a lot of capable people that could uh, could run Montreal. Am I talking uh, to him? Am I talking to that person? I haven't given it any thought, to be honest, but uh, there, there are probably a lot of folks that, uh, that could run Montreal. And I think would, uh, you know, politics isn't just a title, uh, George. Uh, politics is uh, something that you have in your soul. Public servants are public servants because they believe in it. I told you this at the beginning. A mayor can't be a mayor for the glory or for that cape that they may wear if it goes well. It has to be about serving the people that elect you, good and bad, and continue to do that up until your mandate is done. The mistake politicians often make from day one when they get elected is they work to get reelected. If we threw that out the window and we said, from the moment you get elected, you work, end of story. Mm -hmm. And if you merit getting elected, then people will elect you. And in the fluke that they don't, they don't. But if you've done your job for four years, you shouldn't have to go above and beyond to convince them to vote for you. Yeah. And that's what unfortunately happens in politics. And we see this throughout. And oh, by the way, that's a look at that picture. That was the first time I was elected. Oh, man, that's you? You see that? Look, <laughs> you're young. I put it up there. You know why it's in my office at home? Just to remind me, you know, of... Uh, of uh, how we changed and uh, what happens to us after a uh, number of years being in this realm. So, um, Do you think Denny Kader will be coming back? I think that, uh, look, anything is possible. I think it has to be right. Um, there's two things. It has to be right for the people to want him back, but it has to be right for the man as well. Mm -hmm. The sacrifices and the impact that it has on one's life is enormous. And so it has to be right for him before any consideration is made. And at the end of the day, the people have to understand. People have now what they need to compare. Mm -hmm. they, they do. Yeah, that's a good point. In my opinion, they know what, what we had, what was being done, and we know what we have now. Positive and negative. And then people can say, if that's one of the options, well, then people can say, well, they want him back. And then the decision, of course, is going to rest with the man. And, and, and if he feels that it's the right thing for him and for the city, then that's what it will be. But everything has to be analyzed at that level. But I think, in my opinion, if he was to come back as mayor and he was to uh, win, uh, I know the things we did for the four years that we were there. And I think that that's still possible to continue. And uh, if that ever happens, uh, I would personally welcome that uh, that option for sure. Cool. I'm not going to keep you any longer, uh, Jim. It was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, eventually, when all this you know weird situation blows over, man, maybe we can go grab Thanks a coffee you. and have you, you have you within at least a meter, a meter and a half, let's say. Yeah. Best health to everybody, George, to you and your family and to everybody watching. Uh, stay safe, everybody. We're not over this. I know we're joking. We're making light of uh, it a little bit today, uh, but this is serious, uh, and these are serious times we're living. So uh, be safe, everyone. Uh, stay close to the people that are uh, your loved ones, and uh, we'll get through this together. I appreciate your time, Jim. See Thanks, you soon, George. buddy.